Now, you've no doubt noticed we're kind of doing a little bit of a different order of service today. Uh, we're continuing our series, Messy Church, that we've been going through uh, in this letter of 1 Corinthians. And today, as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're speaking specifically about uh, communion this morning. Uh, the sermon is before communion, uh, and it's a sermon about communion, because I want to, at the end of this, uh, what we learned this morning, take this meal together uh, as a church body. Uh, Paul, this morning, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is discussing with the Corinthians uh, a certain set of table manners regarding this meal. And I'm sure that all of you lovely and well-behaved people know all of your table manners. Uh, the, the typical ones, you know, don't talk with food in your mouth, uh, don't reach over people for something, don't put your elbows on the table, which I always thought was a dumb one, to be honest, like... Who cares about that? But, you know, that's one of the rules. Uh, but for me and my brother growing up, uh, we just, we were a little slow on the uptake of some of these table manners at times. And so my mom uh, actually got a ceramic pig and put it on the table. And whenever you did something that was bad table manners, you would have to take the pig. Uh, the whole catch was, if you had the pig at the end of the meal, you were responsible for the cleanup that night. So you had to clear the table, uh, rinse the dishes, load the dishwasher, anything that didn't fit in the dishwasher, you had to wash by hand. These were big steaks. And I know that it would shock and surprise some of you, uh, maybe you won't even believe me when I say this, that on a couple of occasions, I got the pig. Uh, but after a while of doing this, I began to get very cunning with the pig. If I ever got the pig, I was from that moment on, the rest of the meal, on pig patrol, trying to catch anyone else who would have had a moment of bad manners that I could, you know, get rid of this thing. You know, oh, you know, brother, you talked with food in your mouth, here is the pig. You know, I got to pass it along. But the crowning victory was that one time, we got my mom with the pig. I don't, I don't even remember what she did, but I remember from the, that moment on, I didn't speak. I didn't look at anybody. I'm not sure I took another bite because I wanted mom to get stuck with the pig. And I heartily enjoyed watching my mom clean up the kitchen that evening. We didn't use the pig for much longer after that. <laughs> but in our text this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't have a pig but he does have his pen. And with it, he writes to chastise the Corinthians about their poor table manners when it comes to this time for communion. But I also want to caution us this morning that we can't just leave this, as we have throughout this letter, just leave this with the Corinthians. That for us, all of us as Christians, it's important to, to note that we have the right perspective when it comes to this meal. And I think there are kind of two ways that we can have the wrong focus sometimes. I think, first of all, sometimes we can overlook its importance. Especially for us who, uh, as a church tradition, that take this every week. It's easy for this to become commonplace if we're not careful. Uh, kind of a side note to the service that we have, you know, the cracker and the juice, and then we go on to the sermon and the songs and everything else. Or, I think the other way that we can offer, often have the wrong focus is that we can spend too much time talking about what it is not rather than what it is. We get in doctrinal agreements about how often to take it and who can take it and what's actually happening when you do take it, and it's not long before. It's little more than a weekly time to concentrate really hard on Jesus. 
And the Corinthians are kind of facing both of these issues this morning. They have the wrong focus. They've lost sight of what the Lord's Supper is really supposed to be. And so this morning, Paul aims to correct them by telling them what this time is really about. And the first thing that he tells them, and the first thing that that we should know as he tells us, is that communion is a time for reunion. Verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In other words, when you guys gather together on Sunday morning, I have nothing to praise you about because you're hurting yourselves and hurting others in the process. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God, there have, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. You notice Paul does not mince words about his disappointment for how the Corinthians are treating this meal. Because the Corinthians, they would have had, their communion would have been a little bit different than ours. I've always kind of felt weird that we call this the Lord's Supper because we eat this little chiclet cracker and have this symbol of juice. And I always thought, like, Jesus, you need to work on your dinner parties a little bit. It's not much of a supper. But for the early church, communion was part of a greater meal called a love feast where the church would come together and eat a meal and share a meal together. And communion was a part of that meal, the centerpiece of that meal. It would be a little bit like incorporating communion into a church potluck. But the interesting thing is that we often have church meals to build community and fellowship. But for the Corinthians, these meals are actually causing division. We know that division is nothing new to the Corinthians. We saw this division in chapters 1 and 2 over which leaders the Corinthians were following. You know, kind of as a status symbol. I I follow Paul. I follow uh, Apollos. I follow Peter. You know, kind of ascribing badges of honor of who discipled them. But now we see not just these social, these doctrinal divisions or this discipleship division, but we also see some social divisions this morning. A division between those who are rich and those who are poor Christians. You may remember in chapter 1 as Paul is talking about the cross, he says about some of the Corinthians, he says, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. In other words, many of these Corinthian Christians were poor. Some of them were slaves, so poor they didn't even own themselves. And so a number of things are happening as they come together to share this meal, both rich and poor together. First of all, their churches that they would meet in wouldn't be buildings like ours, but house churches. And so meeting in these homes together, they would have had kind of dining rooms and then outside courtyards as well. And so the problem came when the rich were allowed to sit in the dining room in the, in the nicer part of the house while the poor were pushed outside. And what's worse, the rich get the best parts. They, they bring the best dishes, and so they get the, the best parts of the meal. And, and worse than that, even sometimes, they don't even wait until the poor get there to start chowing down. The, the poor would have had to work often, even on Sundays. And so by the time they arrived, most of the food, or at least the good food, was gone. 
This is why Paul says one remains hungry while the other gets drunk. Some have nothing to eat and some are so completely gorged on, on food and wine. And it's kind of similar to how we've set up our table this morning. They've lost sight of the meal in the midst of this meal. They've lost sight of the message of what communion was really about. Paul says they've become so corrupted by what this meal, missing what this meal represents. He says that when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's like, I don't know what you're eating, but it's not what we are intended to do at this time. And the whole irony of this is what this meal was meant to be. This meal is supposed to be one of unity as a congregation. They were united in eating of one loaf, one family, one body. But when it came to communion, there was no communion, no union. This meal is in commemoration of the cross, but they're acting in a manner completely not in accordance with the cross and and what the cross represents. They're eating a meal emphasizing Jesus' death, the ultimate act of selfless love, but they're being selfless and remembering it. And so Paul reminds us and tells us that this meal is, among other things, a time for reunion, a time for us to come together as one family and share in this together. And so Paul says, you've forgotten what you're supposed to be remembering. You've forgotten this is a time for reunion. You've also forgotten this is a time for remembrance. Verse 23 continues, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul goes back to the Last Supper, the night where Jesus begins what we now call the Lord's Supper. This meal, though, did not originate with Jesus. This is a meal that started all the way back in the book of Exodus. But in Jesus, everything about this meal would change. And so when days before Jesus' death, he had this meal with his disciples, it was nothing out of the ordinary for them at first. As Jewish, young Jewish men, they had had this meal time and time again every year for their entire lives. And yet, as one presiding over the meal, Jesus would have taken this bread and blessed it and, and broke it. But though it was a normal meal, Jesus does and says something revolutionary here. He says, this is my body. And the same with the cup. Many times the Jewish men had drank from this cup, and Jesus says, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is saying, this meal that you have been practicing and, a part, and, and Israel has been a part of for thousands of years is now about me. And it's really always been about me. And it's about what I'm going to do. This new relationship established between God and humanity through Jesus' death. That the old way of life is over. The kingdom is being initiated. That everything is being made new. The created order is being redeemed. And Jesus wants us to remember, not just that he would die for us, to to pay our debt that we owed, but that his death and his resurrection are also the culmination of history. 
that everything was leading to this. But what about this does Jesus specifically want us to remember? Because you think, well, I mean, we don't really need to remember Jesus, like we can't really forget him. And so what do we remember during this? But remembrance is not really a word in biblical, uh, biblical sense of a, a passive recall, as much as it is an active meditation. In biblical terms, remembrance requires that something be done. Think about Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, he's on the ark and it's been the, the storms and, and, and everything have subsided, but still they're, they're floating in the ark and it says God remembered him. And at that point, he sent the wind to clear the waters. Abraham in Genesis chapter 19 says God remembered Abraham and as a result, he saved his nephew Lot. You think it's not as if God forgot about Noah, like, oh shoot, I forgot I left him in the boat. Uh, I better do something about that. No, like God's remembrance wasn't tied to mental remembering as much as it was to do something as a result uh, of his note of their presence. And so remembrance in this sense of coming to this meal is an active engagement in this process. And we do so with three different looks. If you were here a couple of months ago, uh, Chris incorporated some of these, these looks into his communion meditation. So I want to review for us what these looks are about. And Paul first tells us uh, to look back. To look back on what this meal has meant for God's people throughout history. It began in the time of the Exodus as this Passover meal. As the last plague was falling upon Egypt, the plague of death of the firstborn. God told the people of Israel, the Hebrews, to put the blood of a lamb upon their doorframe and their household would be spared. It would be passed over. The death angel would pass over. And so for the Israelites, this meal was a remembrance of God's power and deliverance. They were freed from their bondage to slavery to Egypt. And it's also a reminder for them of God's mercy, that he provided a way for them to be spared from this plague. And Christians also look back to this meal as Christ instituted it. That in that moment, that Passover before he was taken to the cross, and we see some of these same implications. We see God's power and deliverance, not from Egypt in a political sense, but from the curse of sin which creation was subjected to. We also see his grace and mercy in providing his son as our sacrifice to die in our place. And so we look back to what this meal has meant. We also, in this time, look around. We, we look at how we share this meal together with fellow believers. How we join in this fellowship with those in our church body. That we are united and sharing not just the same salvation and grace, but that we are one body working together under the headship of Christ. And so we take this time to look around a little bit and think about our relationships on the state of our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Do we hold any division amongst us or maybe amongst between us and someone in maybe another church? Is there any disunity that would get in the way of us celebrating this meal together? Are we withholding forgiveness from or, or harboring a grudge toward a fellow believer? When we take this meal, do we do so knowing that we have done everything in our power to be at peace and unity with those with whom we take it? 
We have to realize that we can't have communion without union. And so we spend this time to look around and think of the state of our relationships as we take this meal as one body. We also look forward. We look forward to Christ's coming again. Verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a a recognition in this meal that Jesus' death was not the end and that our death is not the end. That because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the hope that he will return for us. And we proclaim that with our union. We have the hope of the new creation and the restoration of us back to God. At that last supper, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. He promises us this great reunion, this wedding feast of heaven. And so we think of that as we take this meal and we look forward. You see, what we see in our remembrance leads us not just to think fondly about Jesus, but to truly reflect on why this meal matters. So the third thing that Paul shows us is that communion is a time for reflection. Verse 27, he says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the, with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. As we seek to remember what Jesus did for us when we take this meal, that remembrance should also turn to reflection. It might kind of come as a surprise to you that in the closing section of this part of the letter, Paul does so with some pretty stern warning words. Uh, Paul uses words to cause us to pay attention to some of the dangers surrounding this meal. Words like unworthy manner, guilty, examine themselves, drink judgment upon themselves. He goes as far as to say that some of the Corinthians are, are sick or falling asleep, which is a biblical term for dying because of their mishandling of this meal. It's for that reason that many have called communion the most dangerous meal. That there's something at work here in how we take this. And so to avoid such judgment, we're called to examine ourselves. This word examine is a word of testing. It's to test, in other places, the genuineness of a precious metal or of a coin. A process that salvages the precious metal and discards the extra useless material. And so there are a couple of ways that we examine ourselves, that we can hold on to the valuable aspects of what this time is about while discarding the useless. I think the first thing that we need to evaluate is our relationship with God. Often we come before communion and we think it's a time to try to think really hard about all the sins we've committed that week and try to confess them. You know, I thought something not so nice about that guy who cut me off in traffic. 
probably should have been a little more patient with my kids, shouldn't have said or did what I did when I was angry, shouldn't have looked at this, shouldn't have said that. And we kind of think of this time as a, you know, I'm a terrible person moment. But this moment isn't about receiving forgiveness. We've already received the promise of forgiveness at the time of our salvation. It's not a salvation booster shot to top us up on a little more salvation to get us through this next week. But it's a time to think about the dynamics of our relationship with Jesus. Are we submitting to His Lordship? Do we take this meal to indicate that we are in a covenant relationship with Him? Continually with Him, in union with Him as the head of our lives, head of the church, and actively living out our remembrance of our past and our future in Him. We think about our relationship with God. We also, though, reflect on our relationship with fellow Christians. And that's really Paul's main point of this passage. Paul doesn't even call them here to think about Jesus. We see that in other places. Or to try to count all their sins, but to wait on each other. In other words, it's not an opportunity for self-indulgence as the Corinthians had made it when they came together. And so Paul is teaching that the point of this supper is to focus on the living lordship of Jesus reflected in the believer's relationships within his body. By being united to each other, we are in some ways being united with Christ. And so how does this play out for us? Well, maybe you're not bringing food as a rich person and eating it without other people. But maybe you are bringing with you a spirit of dissension and disunity with someone. And so when you come before communion, it should be an opportunity to come back to the heart of unity. Unity with Jesus as our Lord and unity with our fellow Christians. The danger of the Lord's Supper in having disunity within the body while participating in the remembrance of the death which was for the purpose of unity is an ironic one. That we can't allow our hearts to proclaim something different than what this meal does. This is a time to restore and reflect on our relationship with Jesus, but also a time to demonstrate the restoration that He died for, to have each of us come together, to come together as one. When Kelsey and I first got married... We lived in a small apartment, and the floor plan was a little strange. It had a nice open feel, but the living room and the kitchen and the dining room were kind of all one big open room. And so it really didn't leave much space for a table. And so for the first year of our marriage, the table was kind of pushed up against the side of the kitchen, blocking the pantry a little bit on one side and blocking the entrance to a bedroom on the other side. And for visitors coming to our apartment... I feel like that table had to look a little strange. Like we, we could never get that table to fit quite just right. And as we come before this table this morning, I sometimes think about how strange it must be to someone from the outside looking in. I mean, imagine never going to church before and coming into something like this. A bunch of people holding weird gold trays, with what seems to be a packing peanut in one cup and the tiniest bit of juice you see in the other. I mean, what did we do with this? 
what we do with this is reunite and remember and reflect. My favorite verse of this passage is when he says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, this is more than just a ritual. A ritual. We are in this moment, in a small way, retelling the entirety of the story of Scripture. That everything in the Bible, every moment in history points to this one. Where the God of the universe would take on human flesh and come and live like us so that he could die for us. And so if this meal is retelling, what is the story that we are sharing? In just a minute, we're going to share this meal together. I'm going to have our, uh, those who are serving communion come up during this time, and I'm going to ask that when we pass this out, uh, that you hold on to it. Uh, we're going to sing a, a song as you hold on to that, after which uh, we'll take this together. And as we do, I want to encourage you to recapture in this time the focus of this supper. Maybe it's the time for you to reunite, that there's someone you need to restore a relationship with, ask forgiveness from, whatever it might be to, to restore that relationship. There is no better time than this one. It's also a time for us to remember, to look back on God's deliverance and grace, and to look around at our union with fellow believers, to look forward to the future glorification that awaits us in Christ. It's also a moment to reflect, to honestly assess where your relationship with Jesus is right now. Is he truly your Lord? And if not, ask him for the strength to love him and pursue him in a deeper way. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning to reflect on this meal that you have given us, this opportunity that we have to remember what Jesus has done, that he would take on the penalty of our sin, the wrath of your anger on sin upon himself, that we might be declared righteous, just, justified. God, the weight of that is beyond what we can even imagine. But in the small way that we can, we thank you that he paid the price that we owed. And in this time, we remember that. And I also pray that during this time, we would reflect on our relationship, not just with Jesus, but those of our fellow believers. Are we bringing disunity and division in some small way to the time of this meal? or maybe outside of this meal, that's getting in the way of taking this together, the united church body. God, I pray that we would reflect on our relationship with you. Think seriously about how we live under your lordship, your authority. God, I pray that this meal will be a time of a giving of life for us, in a sense. That we get to participate with what so many have been doing for thousands of years in this moment and will continue to do until you come back to remember your greatness and your love for us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.